0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, hella doomed edition. It's Wednesday, August 16th, 2017. And on today's show, Insecure is an HBO comedy co-created by and starring Issa Rae as a young black woman negotiating love, friendship, work and life in Los Angeles. We'll discuss with Slate's own podcast producer, Vera Williams. Then somewhere back through the eons of geological time that now seem to separate each week in the era of Trump, we had a little nuclear war face-off with North Korea last week that left everyone feeling for a few days like it was the Cold War era all over again. This terrifying yet absurd incident of saber-rattling got us here at the Culture Fest thinking about what is perhaps the greatest film made during and about the Cold War, Stanley Kubrick's comic masterpiece, Dr. Strangelove. And finally, a recent feature in New York Magazine detailed what the author, Kat Rosenfeld, described as the toxic drama of YA Twitter. This was the furor that kicked up online surrounding the release of a new young adult fantasy novel. We'll have Laura Miller, who's Slate's book critic and a frequent guest on the show, on to help us understand what all that toxic drama was about and what it says about the state of online discourse. Stephen Metcalf is out this week on vacation, I believe. So we are joined in his place by Aisha Harris, Slate culture writer and host of The Great Slate Podcast represent. Hi, Aisha. Hi. And, of course, by Julia Turner, editor of Slate. Hello, Julia. Hi, Dana. Hi, Isha. Thanks for coming in. Thanks. Insecure is an HBO comedy series co-created by and starring Issa Rae as, in the words of the web series on which the show is based, an awkward black girl negotiating love, friendship and work and everyday life in Los Angeles. Julia stepped out for this segment discreetly into the corridor because she is the spouse of someone who works in HBO comedy and she doesn't want to discuss HBO comedies on our show. But that's all the better for us because we're bringing into, I believe, super fans. Y'all have been <laughs> following the show since the beginning, right? Yes. Slate's own Aisha Harris and Verilynn Williams, who are respectively a Slate culture writer and the host of the ever more indispensable Slate podcast, Represent, and that podcast's producer. So before we dive into our discussion of Insecure, let's listen to a clip. It's like it doesn't matter what I do, Isa.
2: If I'm into them, then I'm too smothering. If I take my time and try to give them space, oh, I didn't think you were into me. Fine. Sex right away. Lose interest. Wait to have sex. Lose interest. If I don't have sex at all, fucking oh, no. I'm a grown ass woman. I did not sign up for that bullshit. I think your pussy's broken.
3: What? No, I read about it. It's like pussy's breaking everywhere. I think your pussy's sad.
2: It's had enough. And if it could talk, it would make that sad Mark Simpson groan. Yes, that's it. That's
3: your pussy. (laughs) You're an asshole. Fuck
2: you, Lisa. Are you ladies ready? Uh, No, can you give us, like, two minutes? (laughs) We're just...
1: You've done two represents featuring it in one way or another, right?
3: Yeah, at least. So I, I remember we, I think we had a discussion with it, with Cara Brown, like about it. Yeah, Kara Cara Brown, yeah. like way back last Whoa. fall. Feels like fun. <laughs> and then we've also had the um, the showrunner Princess Penny on. And we do have an upcoming episode with Molly, the um, Yvonne Orgy actually, who plays Molly. Oh, that's exciting.
1: I want to hear, I want to hear from Molly. Yes, yes. That's coming up next week. So everyone can check that out. So we should set up for listeners who, like me, did not watch Insecure until I just caught up with some episodes yesterday, and now I really want to go back and watch the whole thing. Um, Let's describe a little bit the setup of the show. I think it's kind of an unusual show in that it focuses on female friendship. It's been called The Black Sex in the City, but to me, the focus on friendship is very different because it's more intimate. It's it's two particular Mm -hmm. friends, and uh, maybe we could start by just describing... Molly and Issa's friendship.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's gotten a lot of comparisons to Sex and the City, but also to girls, I think, just because of how close in time uh, right. these two, like as one was just ending, Insecure started. Um, but what I think makes us different is that, like you said, it is more intimate. You have Issa, Issa Ray, the co-creator um, who is playing Issa. Uh, in the, the, the grand show.
1: tradition, right? The grand tradition of
3: <laughs> like comic <Louis>. heroes with <laughs> almost their own name. Yeah, exactly. So she, um, what makes it more intimate, I think, is the fact that Instead of having, like, three best girlfriends, she has one best girlfriend and then, like, you know, occasionally we'll get some great side characters who, like, we can maybe talk about later. Um, but, you know, it's her and Molly and they have a very, you know, like, they are besties and they go hard for each other. Um, they, you know, they commiserate over relationships, but also over um their work uh that like the work i think is like a big part of it because unlike those other shows like work kind of took a back burner whereas like
1: right and whoever talked about their jobs in sex in the city right? yeah i mean yeah, yeah.
3: and so molly it's just so people know molly is a lawyer and she's trying to like move up the ladder um in the corporate world and she's dealing with especially this season she's dealing with a lot of um, issues with around the wage gap she's trying to figure out like is am I getting paid less than this other guy who does the same thing as I do because I'm black, or is it because I'm a woman or is it both? Um and then you have Issa who is like stuck in a kind of not very uh fulfilling job
2: uh where she's I guess it's kind of like an advocacy like kids. It's ch- like an after school program. At a nonprofit. At a nonprofit. So it's all about the numbers and right. and negotiating, you know, the the white her white coworkers that are seeing this um, quote unquote at risk youth <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. and it's like dealing with the tension of that being in the nonprofit industrial complex um, another thing I love about their friendship Issa and Molly is that they know exactly what to say to cut each other deep right as you as besties often do like they're the person that sees you and they're the person that like says the thing that hits right on that spot that you're like if I didn't love you <laughs> yeah I would not be I would not be having this conversation with
1: you right yes, now yes that is something that I really like about their friendship, which is established right from the pilot, is that, like you say, they they go hard for each other, right? I mean, they they're not saccharine, they're not sweet, they don't support each other no matter what. In fact, they have a fight almost every episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do, but it's always it's always out of love.
3: And and I think one of the things that you see, um, if you're on episode four, I don't know if you've gotten to it yet in season one, but they have a big blowout, like a very climactic blowout, where you know, and we can we obviously have to talk about Lawrence Issa's boyfriend at the beginning of season one, uh, but. You know, she uh, she gets upset. Uh, well, I guess we can spoil.
2: Yeah, I feel like we can spoil. Season if you haven't, one. if you haven't
3: watched season one yet, and you don't want to be spoiled, don't, like stop listening right now. But <laughs> um, essentially, Issa is unhappy with her relationship with her boyfriend Lawrence, and he um, she winds up cheating on him with an old. Someone she's had a crush on for for a while, who like suddenly pops back in her life, um, and Molly calls her out on it. She's like, and she's trying to help make sure that the old the person who cheated on Lawrence with does not like interact with Lawrence at this party that they're both at um and they have a blowout over that and at the same time Issa gives it back to her where she's just like you know what you are so and Molly is a very particular dater she has her standard she's like she's kind of like the Charlotte or like the oh, t- like, or like the, the Tony. Regine,
2: Regina Regina oh, Regi- Regina Regina from Living Single Regina from Living Single the like, 90s yeah. sitcom mm-hmm.
3: or even Tony Childs yes. from from Girlfriends which is in 2000s uh uh, great sitcom that everyone should check out. Um, that this also has very similar DNA to that show, but you know, she
1: has acknowledged right. She girlfriend's is a big influence. Oh, for sure, that. for sure.
3: Um, but anyway, they have a blowout over these issues, and they both know how to say like call each other on their bullshit. And I think that's what's really great. And then this season, we're seeing even more of that. Like they're trying to navigate this world, and and. And they're doing it together, but they also, like, are real about it. I
1: yeah. wanted to talk about Lawrence, too. And I know you all have some stories to tell about him that I probably don't know from episodes that I've missed. But something I really liked about the the arc of his character is that from the moment you see him in the pilot and sort of see Issa's dismissive attitude toward him, like at a certain moment, he accuses Molly, her best friend, of having two high standards. And she says, maybe she should lower them like I did, which <laughs> you just think this guy has to be toast. He's going to be her boyfriend for two episodes at most. Mm-hmm. And uh and he sort of sticks around going in and out of her life and having these, you know, kind of painful separations and reunitings with her for the first season. And uh, and he becomes a real character. You know, he yeah. remains, the, you, you see the problems in their relationship. You see that he's this kind of passive dude who's not really sort of making their life together special. You see why she might want to break up with him. But at the same time, he gets to emerge as a real person. And that seems to be continuing into season two. And that seemed like a great arc to give him in a show where you could sort of easily have just turned him into disposable boyfriend number one yeah Mm
2: -hmm. I mean ultimately what I loved about season one at the end of it I was like like this feels more than anything I ever watched so tightly tightly close to how me and my friends interact like there are no good characters there are no like person that you say oh this person was obviously done wrong or this person was obviously you know um the villain in in the situation and the thing about lawrence's character is like yeah when you first see him you're like okay they obviously should not be together then you see him become motivated and like you know he meets Tasha, the bag teller, (laughs) he's like, I have a girlfriend. And you're like, okay, Lawrence, like, you're, you're, you know, we see that he genuinely wanted to be in this relationship with Issa, that she obviously was the, if you see if you say one person is a catch and one person is getting caught, I mean, it's it's doing the catch. She was definitely the person that was, I don't want to say the better person in the relationship, but he was definitely, it, it came off that he was definitely like, she was a catch for him. So this is
3: what I find so fascinating about this show is that it's developed such a. From having conversations with people who watch the show, I feel like because it's so true to life mm. and the way that people act and and the way like you everyone said, everyone is great, air, themselves in it. Well, everyone seeing themselves in it, but it's also like you you see like I get a, a sense of how people will act in their own relationships based on <laughs> who they who they tend to uh, favor because yes, there are no, you know, there's like Issa also obviously is not perfect. And, you know, but at the same time, you have to factor in the fact that they've been together for four years, I believe. um, And he was not attempting to even get a job to help pay the rent.
1: (laughs) And so you can kind of see where her resentment is coming from. Yeah, Yeah, he's got a business plan that he's developing. Right.
3: And it's just like, I mean, come on. Like, It's fine, but you you also need to, like, get a job. And he does eventually get a job at Best Buy. And, like, that's, like, his, like, next step. Obviously, when you have a college degree from Georgetown, it's, like, Working at Best Buy is not what you want to do, mm-hmm. but it was a start. Uh, but like, what I love about it is that this show has developed like a Team Lawrence, Team Isa thing, Ugh. which is <laughs> so wrong because yes. really it should just be Team Everyone. Just needs to figure out their life. Yeah, yeah. But that's the thing about this show is that it, it it does develop. Like it it makes people think about how they would act in these situations, and like we have those conversations. And I'm just like, oh, I wouldn't want to date you. If we're we're like having this conversation. You're like Team Lawrence. I'm like, oh, I
2: know how you might be. <laughs>
1: I did not know that Division had, had erupted. Oh, I it yeah. exists. Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, anyone that's still t- that's on the record from Verilyn, if you're still Team Lawrence after episode four of this, like I, season. of this season, I don't even know what to do with you. Like, we honestly can't even talk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, now I have to continue with this season just to find out what that means. Then you had a Lawrence story that you wanted to tell from episode one. Um, So
2: actually, so spoiler alert, is this is from episode four of season two. There's a lot of, like, being black in America, there's a lot of things that happen to you. And what I like about this show is that something would happen, and they don't spend a lot of time on it. They'll go on and live their lives, right? So everyone in this apartment complex gets um, noise warnings on their doors. And I have heard friends talk about that. That was the first step in them getting evicted, so gentrification can happen, right? And then in this last episode, Lawrence gets stopped by the police. So there's a lot of traffic. Everyone is making illegal U-turns, and then he gets stopped and automatically he's like playing rap music he turns it down no no he also turns
3: it and he changes it to like classical music
2: <laughs> which is like such a
3: like they don't even fall on it you, yeah. you might miss it but it's like a yeah. moment that I was like oh wow <laughs> yeah
2: and then the police officer comes over to him he like stumbles he's nervous he gives him his his ID then he like drops all his credit cards on the on his lap he tries to go get for it another cop that's watching him says keep your hands where I can see it and is this really intense moment where you're like you're nervous for him you know that this can go dangerously wrong and then the police officer comes back and he's like he makes a joke about them like going to the Hoyas they apparently went to the same school or no
3: no he said I I should have given you a ticket for having a Hoya sticker on your car because Lawrence went to Georgetown and this cop said he went to Villanova so I guess they have a sports sports, rivalry. I don't don't know anything about this. Whatever it is. (laughs) In
2: my mind if I was Lawrence and like a lot of people that have been Lawrence you're thinking like I'm just trying to get out of this alive and he's making a joke and And it reminds me, like, when when I'm at the airport and, like, this woman is, like, putting her hands in my hair and I want to say something, but I also don't want to, like, keep this moment going longer, you know? So you kind of just, like, laugh or you make a joke and he's, like, to the police officer, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, go, whatever. And then he goes about his business. And for this police officer, he's just, like, having a great day. Like, this, like, disrupted Lawrence's whole, like, you know what I mean? And so, like, there's lots of moments like that where, like, they're living their lives in LA in this moment as black people and things happen, but it's not the center of the story. You know, these moments happen and then whatever shift in their day continues to have ramifications. Um, And we won't go into how Lawrence getting stopped and losing his, um, his credit card affected the rest of his day.
1: (laughs) Well, but it did something that made you like dislike him so much that nobody Mm -hmm. can be on team Lawrence anymore. Right. (laughs) As, as Aisha, um, so eloquently
2: said, he went into the sunken place a little bit. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I wrote a post first late about
3: uh, his his trip to the sunken place from Get Out.
1: Um, that actually, we we didn't we sort of danced around. I think the the main principal charm of this show, Issa Rae's performance in this show and her her general sort of demeanor as this character who's almost herself, I guess, is. It's just the, the enormous charm of it is all the times that you see her sort of trying to summon the cool that she thinks she's <laughs> expected to have. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and in that sense, I mean, that that quality that, that Issa Rae has reminded me of just a very common theme that you would see in Keene Peel sketches all the time, more in the, in the mode of black masculinity, but sort of the idea of trying to pull it off and mm-hmm. not quite managing, you know, and that's like the, the little struggle of that performance is something that she communicates so comically and so beautifully, I think. Mm-hmm. I agree. All right. So again, the show is Insecure. It airs Sunday nights on HBO and it's just been moved to a golden spot right after Game of Thrones. So hopefully that will bring more attention and more eyeballs to it because it deserves it. Well, Verilyn, thank you so much for coming in to talk Insecure with us. Thank you for having me. And you can come and join our discussion about Insecure at Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Before we move on to our next segment, Julia, it is time to do the bidness. What have you got? Uh, First, I want to
4: remind our listeners about our forthcoming live show in Toronto, Canada, in collaboration with the Toronto Public Library and the Toronto International Film Festival. It is September 13th at 7 p.m. at the Toronto Reference Library count it a reference library as we've discussed the best kind of library except for maybe a rare books archive tickets are free and will become available at 9 a.m eastern on august 23rd so put a note in your calendar for august 23rd because they're going to go fast we'll also be doing a small cocktail party afterwards at a nearby location so check slate.com live to get the link to free tickets and to buy tickets for the after party which also guarantees admission I also want to take a moment here to recommend the Slate podcast, TrumpCast. This was started by our chairman, Jacob Weisberg, during the uh, election. We thought surely it would end by the GOP convention. Surely it would end by the election. It has not ended. Trumpcast. Surely the presidency would end, please. TrumpCast is ongoing and more necessary than ever. Uh, the regular hosts are Jacob Uh, Writer Virginia Heffernan and Slate's chief political correspondent, Jamel Bowie. Uh, Just this week, Virginia interviewed Jamel, who's based in Charlottesville, about the events there over the weekend. So check out Trumpcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, We also wanted to take a moment here to shout out Slate's Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club for Slate Plus members. Uh, Dana, you just did an episode, right?
1: Yes, this is a, some, a podcast series only for Slate Plus members that our Browbeat editor, Sam Adams, is running. And he's interviewed a bunch of film critics and, and others about great conspiracy thrillers through the ages, beginning back in the, you know, sort of heyday of the conspiracy thrillers. So, for example, he kicks off with All the President's Men with Mark Harris, who with whom we've had some great conversations on our show, and uh, and sort of moves up through the present day. I'm part of the seventh out of eight, and we talk about the uh, the Born ultimatum him, although ultimately we talk about all all three of the what we consider sort of the classic Bourne trilogy, and how that character, the amnesiac who can't find his own identity, sort of relates back to, for example, Warren Beatty in the Parallax View, or or one of these earlier conspiracy figures who does know who he is, but is trying to figure out what the hell is going on in government. Um, and I think the Bourne movies are kind of a great inversion of that, and we had a nice conversation about it. But all of this whole series is worth listening to, the, um, the conspiracy thrillers from Slate Plus.
4: So to listen to that series, you should become a member of Slate Plus. You'll also hear bonus segments for this and Slate's other big shows. This week we'll be talking with Laura Miller about Summer Beach Reads. Uh, to hear that segment, other segments like it, the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. You can get Slate Plus for free for 90 days by downloading our new iOS app at slate.com app, and you'll get all the benefits of Slate Plus for three months. So get Slate Plus by trying the app for free for 90 days at slate.com slash app. All right, let's go discuss Strange Love.
1: Doctor Strangelove, where to begin? So recently, I was asked by the BBC to um, to submit a list along with a bunch of other film critics from around the world of the ten best comedies of uh, all time. Too. You were too. <laughs> Wasn't yeah. it incredibly hard to do? Did you submit yes, one? Yes,
3: I did. I did. It, it was hard.
1: Uh, I'm very curious to see yours come out. They haven't published them yet. No, right? no. They're compiling. They must be compiling a hell of a lot because they they took a long time. Anyway, I as a rule dislike doing lists, especially ranked lists. This list had to be ranked. It was total agony to pick. It basically felt at the end like, I'm just going to throw these into the bucket because they're 10 great comedies, but there's, you know, a hundred more I could easily have put in. But one that was on every single list, no matter how many times I broke it down and rewrote it and re-ranked it, was Dr. Strangelove. And I think part of the reason it seemed like such an ineluctable must-have on a list of, of 10 greatest comedies of all time is because it does something no other comedy I can think of ever did no um, American film comedy which is to you know take something as serious and terrifying as nuclear war which as scared as we may be of it now in the era of Trump was truly something on the table in the, not, the year 1964 that this movie was made and uh, and to turn it into an absolutely hilarious uproarious and bizarre comedy that to me still holds up after more than 50 years so before we start our conversation about Dr. Strangelove let's first listen to a clip
2: I'm afraid I don't understand something Alexei Is the premier threatening to explode this if our planes carry out their attack? No, sir. It is not a thing a sane man would do. The doomsday machine is designed to trigger itself automatically. But surely you can disarm it somehow? No. It is designed to explode if any attempt is ever made to untrigger it.
0: Automatically? Ah, That's an obvious commie trick, Mr. President. We're wasting valuable time. Look at the boy! They're getting ready to clobber us!
2: Well, this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? There were those of us who fought against it. But in the end, we could not keep up with the expense involved in the arms race, the space race, and the peace race. And at the same time, our people grumbled for more nylons and washing machines. Our doomsday scheme cost us just a small fraction of what we've been spending on defense in a single year. But the deciding factor was when we learned that your country was working along similar lines, and we were afraid of a doomsday gap. This is preposterous. I've never approved of anything like that. Our source was the New York Times.
1: So the voices you heard were Peter Sellers as the president, Merkin Muffley. I'm going to warn you that every single proper name I can remember will be spoken in this segment because they're all such great names in Dr. Strangelove. Uh, It was Peter Bull as the Russian ambassador and George C. Scott as General Buck Turgidson.
4: (laughs) Even that like figment of a performance makes me laugh. And I also (laughs) will note that that clip ends with a fake news complaint about The New York Times.
1: (laughs) Already failing back in 1964. This movie remains timely. So, how did it feel to you guys to see to rewatch Doctor Strange Love? I'm assuming that you both have seen it in your lives before. It's the kind of movie that it just bobs up in your life every few years, and there's always a reason to see it. But seeing it now in the age of, um, you know, of I don't even know what age we're in. In the age of possible again threatened nuclear annihilation, did it have any different perspective?
4: I watched it and marveled again at just what a brilliant piece of comedy it is, and what a wildly free-seeming piece of political satire is. And my main response was actually not to feel uh, concerned that we were on the brink of nuclear annihilation once more. Like, I think the more pieces that have written about last week's um, nostril flaring from the president suggest that, in fact, probably we are not on the brink of nuclear Armageddon with North Korea, but more to be excited about when movies conceived of in and about the Trump administration start to come out. Like, I do not think we have seen a radical comedic dismantling of the Trump era yet. Uh, And I want one. And I hope we can have one that's as good as this one. Um, Like the, the fundamental health of the culture that could produce this movie about the nuclear war uh made me happy and hopeful that we still have such a healthy culture. I hope we do. I hope we get a movie like this about now.
3: Yeah, I so I actually had only seen this once before uh when I rewatched it for this. And that was when I was in high school, so it was over a decade ago. Barely remember the the nuts and bolts of it. Um obviously I've read a lot about it and it's always talked about uh but when I was in high school like I don't think it really registered to me at all. Um I found some parts funny, but I, I didn't think it was like laugh out loud funny. And when you're, you know, a teenager, your humor is a little different. Um, Now I just, oh, this, it's so, I, I read that, you know, uh, Peter Sellers, especially like a lot of what he did was somewhat improvised and that um, Kubrick would go back and retroscript and, and, you know, they would, you know, he would improvise on set and then they'd go
1: back and like make it part of the script. And. That's maybe that's it's, where Julie's getting at with free seeming, right? That gives a yeah. freedom and a wildness to his performance. Yeah. His performances. Well, and we should right. We should note that
4: he plays three characters in yes. the film. Right? He plays the president, Merkin Muffley, <laughs>
1: Merkin <and> Muffley,
3: <laughs> Doctor Strangelove himself, and then also um, Lionel Mandrake, who's a British officer. Um, but yeah, it, it it's so tightly, it's free, but it also feels very tight. It's a short. It's a short movie, especially for Kubrick. I mean, a lot of his movies tend to hover on the longer end of things but like just how tightly constructed it all is i and i loved george c scott's performance like his he was the one who actually reminded me if we're going to do the comparison he's the one who reminded me the most of of trump in a way just because uh he's just very bombastic and seems to say things like anything that can get him what he wants uh in the same way that trump will do
4: do that oh you Um, don't think trump is general ripper I, I can see that, too, but I don't— General Ripper being, we should just clarify, <laughs> the rogue. So the, the plot device here is the General Ripper— uh, Jack D. Ripper. Jack D. Ripper. <laughs> Played by
1: Sterling Hayden, wonderfully. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, Should we just
4: read the the IMDb of all the character <laughs> There's names There's King Kong. Call the segment a <laughs> close. Um, but so the, the plot here is that uh, Jack D. Ripper is a general of an Air Force base— who decides uh, to enact Plan R, which is the plan wherein a lower general can uh, choose to send many, many nuclear missiles at the Soviet Union because he assumes that Washington has been stamped out already. Um, And once that plan is in effect, it is uh, nearly impossible to call it off. And they spend a bunch of the movie trying to figure out how to do so. But um, anyway, he's the one who is like a, doddering crazy man with strange ideas about yeah he's paranoid and full of ideas of to to me he's sort of the
1: Breitbart wing right yeah he represents the sort of Stephen Miller Bannon crazy paranoid I saw more of that than because I I think what
3: made Trump or what made um
1: Turgidson yeah so what made Turgidson (laughs) seem
3: more like Trump to me was the the well the mistress <laughs> for one um, the-, the only
1: woman in the movie we should know that yes. is a very 1964 thing about this movie yeah is that women play essentially no role except sex doll yes um and then and sex- also she's sex doll slash secretary right right, <laughs> right. yes in the, in the grand
3: style of the early 60s that was a great scene where she's like telling she's yelling out everything that's said on the phone while he's in the bathroom and it's just like oh this is top secret information you're yelling out um but uh, yeah, I just I think that the the way in which he he seems so eager to go to war is what makes me feel like he's more like Trump. And and they also just have like a very similar like the hands, like lots of hand gestures and lots of just like very wild cartoonish uh, character characterization that I think falls more for Trump than uh, Ripper.
1: That just makes me want to slip in. You guys know the backstory for George C. Scott's performance is that Kubrick told him essentially George C Scott thought that the script was too over the top he didn't it didn't jibe with his sense of humor he played the character more straight and more restrained and Kubrick in order to get him to loosen up and have some of those exaggerated gestures and be the kind of you know cocky arrogant macho posture that he is told him, why don't you, why don't we do some practice takes where you just really overplay it and just really punch it up just to warm up and we won't use those. And of course, those were the takes that he used. And George C. Scott was actually angry for years at Kubrick and said he would never work with him again because of that. Although he did eventually come to appreciate the movie. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I also like that he's got the scenery chewing performance in which he literally chews gum the whole time.
3: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a very, whenever you see someone chewing gum in a movie, it's like, you know, they're chewing the scenery (laughs) too
4: (laughs) uh yeah well i i I mean the performances are are just hilarious to a one uh but that wasn't quite what i meant about the freedom of the movie it does feel comedically free and i didn't know that about the um improvisation but it it makes sense in retrospect but i more just mean um the freedom of critique the freedom of like mocking the end of the world, the freedom of joking about nuclear annihilation. Like it, 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 uh, is, has no reverence for anything and, uh, concludes, as surely our listeners know at this point, with total world <laughs> annihilation. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 it's powerful for its freedom. And I, and I don't know, that's, that's, What I most admire about it, I think.
1: Yeah, that maybe gets at why I was saying that it was it was an ineluctable place on the on the 10 best comedies of all time list is because what it does is so unusual and so so brave in a way. Something about its genesis that I didn't know until researching it for this segment is that it's based on a, a straight novel, a non-comic novel about a very similar scenario. So essentially the same plot, but without the funny names, without the character Dr. Strangelove appearing in it at all. This novel called Red Alert that, um, that Kubrick used to base the script on and the way he tells the story, he was trying to write a straight Cold War movie, and it turned into a satire as he started to realize, well, this stuff is just funny. There's no way I can get at the essential paradox of mutual assured destruction without turning it into a comedy. So the idea that you would take something that you were trying to make a straight drama from and turn it this much on its head is just, that's another mark of, you know, the movie's kind of wild creativity.
4: Yeah. Well, and, and that that actually farce might be the right way to talk about nuclear annihilation is... is um Telling, I think. And I didn't mean to blow off at the beginning of this segment the idea that our President Donald Trump has control over our nuclear arsenal is terrifying. It is terrifying, and there's plenty of potential problems in in the command and control structures as they're currently in place. You know, we ran a cover story a few months ago about a nuclear simulation war game in the early 80s that very nearly turned into an actual nuclear war. I mean the potential for error still exists and is real and the movie is pertinent for that as well but one thing that did strike me uh, in all the scenes in the war room which is uh you know a very cinematic dark round table with maps overhead i mean it's a Uh, a a much more glamorous room than like the room where you saw Obama and his team watching the bin Laden raid, which just looked like a conference room somewhere.
1: It's an extraordinary set, absolutely amazing set with this glossy black floor and everything looking sort of uh, as if the war has already happened and the future has has come. Has arrived, yeah. Yeah.
4: Um, But, you know, one of the things that makes this a farce rich environment is the fact that pretty immediately, as soon as people face the enormity of what might happen, like grown-up humanity preserving impulses kick in and the Americans and Russians are largely trying to collaborate to stave off nuclear annihilation. And that also is a moment where you wonder about the present day. Like, where are the grown ups who would try to make good prevail? Why don't they seem to be present? Where right. is their influence? Why does you know in a nuclear war it, you know, waiting two and a half days to do some semblance of the right thing as the president did this past weekend
1: after the events in Charlottesville. You don't have that kind of time. Oh, yeah. I mean, the the famous phone conversation that Merkin Muffley, the president, has with the Russian premier, I guess, he's yeah. talking to on the phone. It's apparently based on an old skit that Peter Sellers used to do, of speaking on the phone. It's so incredibly funny. But it's sort of an appeasing conversation, right? Merkin Muffley's trying to chill out and calm everything down. And watching that scene, as absurd and over the top as the satire was, I was missing Merkin Muffley. Like, why don't we have a president with this level of maturity and understanding? <laughs> well, that was the thing that
3: struck me was just like... The fact that it's the, the, like, obviously the president is, is also like, he's a, a commander in a way, but like, it's the war generals, it's the, the war officers who are like, yeah, we need to have this war, like, we, let's, let's, let's do this destruction. Whereas the president is very clearly just like tampering, like, we don't need to do this. Let's let's preserve what we can. We can figure this out. Um, and clearly that's not what's happening. Yeah. Right now. If you add <laughs> Donald
1: Trump or any fictional version of him to that mix in the war room, like this movie is a lot shorter. Right. We get to the, uh, the, the final Armageddon much, much quicker. All right. Well, thanks for rewatching Strange Love with me, guys. That was a great conversation. The movie is Dr. Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, to use its full title. It's available streaming practically everywhere, I'm sure. Please go watch it. It's worth it in this week or any week. And you can have a conversation about it with us at Facebook.com slash CultureFest. So last week there was an explosive argument on Twitter, which I witnessed sort of sideways. But our guest, Laura Miller—hello, Laura Miller, book critic at Slate— Hello. You were right in the middle of this battle, so I oh, want you I to describe it to I I would say us. I
0: was more tangential. Than that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, don't want to suggest that I had a central role. I simply um, retweeted an article that ran in Vulture about a huge controversy on a, about a particular YA novel, the first novel in a series, and... As a result of my tweeting about that article, I was then subjected to sort of a barrage of tweets of people who either agreed or disagreed with the article. So um, I'm sure I was not even close to the eye of the hurricane the way that Kat Rosenfield, the author of this article, was.
1: Well, can you frame what the argument was about and what Kat Rosenfield's article was alleging about the sort of tone of of drama, of high drama discourse on Twitter?
0: Yes. Um, So... Laurie Frost is the author of a book called The Black Witch, which is the first book in a sort of YA fantasy series that was published by Harlequin and that was highly anticipated until a bookseller who is also a book blogger who specializes in YA published a 9,000-word diatribe about the book, alleging that it was... Racist, ableist, homophobic—I—I I, I can't remember all of the epithets—and including many passages of quotation from the book—and then this cause of sort of denouncing this book and instructing everybody not to read it took to Twitter and was spread throughout the sort of networks of. YA social media enthusiasts. Then the controversy sort of spread to whether it was even okay to try to read the book to find out if you agreed with the claims that the blogger made, and so on and so on. It just sort of metastasized into this crazy um, whirlwind. And so this this piece is really just an examination of how this happened and how many people feel that it is sort of symptomatic of the the toxicity of a certain corner of Y a Twitter I mean arguably it, it is just a particular corner of people who are mostly not teens who are who feel that they need to evaluate all the books coming out for their, lack of problematicness i don't even really know what the <laughs> right term right the right the term is and whether there was just sort of a kind of a thoughtless pile on um, as a result of this prominent person in this group leading this denouncement of this book
1: it seems worth establishing up front as well that, as I understand it this book, the black witch is it takes place in this sort of dystopic universe in which racial hierarchies in 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 terms of almost sort of like species hierarchies between elves and trolls or I don't know what the fantasy creatures are, but it's <laughs> yeah, about it's a yeah. sort of about a, a racist and highly uh,
0: structured future correct uh it's not a future it's a fantasy world it's it's a magical. A uh, fantasy world where people travel by horsepower. I mean, it's not as adult as Game of Thrones. It's it's if I have read a good chunk of this book, um, and it's a very kind of cheesy, recognizable formulaic YA fantasy romance. It has certain characteristics, but it also shares something with. The fantasy field in general, which is that it's this way that people seem to work out a lot of their identity issues or their issues with other people's identities or with the very idea of identity in this sort of dream world where you have like elves and orcs and dwarves and fairies or whatever. Um, I mean, I think it's pretty, it's a sort of a pop culture, pop literature way of people dealing with with that idea. Um,
1: and that it is the story of someone, the heroine in that universe, gradually becoming more, more yeah. woke to the elf, yeah, and fairy it's, issue. It's, as
0: they say, a white enlightenment story, which to be fair to the people who have criticized the book, they do know that. Now, this, this girl in this story, she's, she's very much your sort of generic fantasy protagonist. You know, she was sort of raised, in the provinces and sort of a sheltered life. But of course she has a secret destiny and these hidden powers. And there's even a friggin' prophecy. Like there always is. I'm so sick of prophecies. And, um, and then, you know, there's two boys who both like her and there's Lail a mean girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, so there's a lot of that stuff, you know, it's like, and then she goes off to college But as a rule, they, you know, she's been raised with these ideas about what these different people are like, the werewolf people, the elf people, the I can't remember all the other different kinds, some of them are called Celts, which I think is kind of a weird um, (laughs) injection of real world um, uh, terminology. And so she goes off to this school. She goes off to university, and then she's exposed to all of these people that she's never even met. Any of these other kinds of people before, and um, and many of them hate her because she looks just like her grandmother, who is a big heroine among. A, a, she's the black witch, the heroine among her people, but um, those other races or species. Regard her grandmother as an oppressor, which is just totally. She's like a, some d- d- really dumb Southern belle who thinks that everybody admires Robert E. Lee. In in that, you know, that's an analogy. <laughs> and so, so, um, so you know, she's both. She's sort of treated badly, but then she's also forced to recognize that her prejudices are. Are, are that and it's it takes a long it, t- it takes a long time and it's really this process is not even really totally over by the end of this book um, which is I think the issue that this blogger had with with this book not that the book itself portrays in particular her aunt is just the worst of the worst of these sort of snooty uh, supremacist types. The book doesn't really endorse this. It's clear that the this is how all the bad guys in the book think. But I think the blogger felt that it took too long for the protagonist to get a clue about this stuff.
4: The description in the vulture piece presents it as though this book is clearly a story in which uh, the supremacism is presented as an evil and the protagonist is learning about the evil she has been raised with over time, and that the blogger critiquing the work and stirring up agitation on Twitter about it uh, it was sort of unfairly cherry-picking quotes from the evil people as though they were the position of either the protagonist or the author. The summary of the book, as you've just described it, suggests that there's a little bit more uh, mud and murk on both sides. Yeah, in I terms mean, of the book and its execution of these complicated ideas which it, you know, you can ch- challenge the notion of whether a white enlightenment plot is a p- plot worth doing at all. You can raise the interesting questions you've raised about uh, using species fantasy species as a proxy for p- social difference and racism in our own time. All, like, like you've raised a number of fair critiques that didn't come into the piece and then it also sounds like the longer critique from the blogger that kicked this all off, may have been slightly misrepresented in the Vulture piece.
0: I would say it was slightly misrepresented. However, it is also true that the way that this particular corner of the internet talks about books is so purged of nuance and sort of judgment and consideration that her argue you know there's a way to look at this book and go oh this is just you know kind of a white enlightenment story and do we really need another one of these or or to sort of be like well you know there's a point at which when you're depicting something that the narrative wants to sort of judge as bad like how far do you go with that before you start to seem like you're kind of indulging in it which is, I think, what this blogger is trying to say. I don't think the blogger was fair in that she did not really acknowledge that it's part of a series and that it's taking this character a long time to get clued in, partly because all of the different people that she meets are instantly hostile to her because of her her family background and she doesn't understand why. Um, but And I also think that those quotes were definitely... Also cherry picked to make them sound like that was the pervasive ideology of the whole book. Because when you pull all those quotes out and you put them all together, and there, it it isn't really clear that these are all the things that the bad guys, you know, said. It it it's just like a list of disgusting attitudes. And and it should be said that there are people who they're actually teenage readers of color who have come out in defense of this book because they've felt like, well, at least they're being honest. At least this book is honest about the level of, you know, just how entrenched these attitudes can be. And and it does always feel a little bit weird to talk about this as if it is a book about race in our world, because it's not. It's a fantasy world, you know. I mean, I'm not in
3: the YA world by any means, (laughs) Uh, so this is all very uh, foreign to me. But uh, how big of a book is this? Like, I get that it's going to be a series, but, like, is this going to be a book that, like, we're going to see in two years a movie? They're going to try and launch a movie off of this, like The Hunger Games. Because it seems to me like people are getting very upset about this for no
0: reason (laughs) are you saying it's a tempest in a teapot
3: well i think the thing that bothers me and this is the conversation that we've been having for years now about not even just within ya twitter but obviously on school campuses where people are just trying to shut ideas down for the simple fact that like it makes them feel bad um and especially since most of the people who are commenting on all of this happened this furor happened before the book even came out so most people hadn't read the book and calling have this blogger having them like calling out like don't read this book to me is kind of like a witch hunt in a way that like is is this a thing that the ya community is really dealing with because in response to the the vulture piece shannon ozerny in globe and mail uh commented she's like well it's Maybe this is maybe the vulture piece is kind of overblowing this idea that it's the YA. This is just a a fraction of that world. Like, Laura, like, is your sense that that's true? Do you think that this is sort of it's an even smaller corner of this bigger uh, conversation we're having? Or is it something to be really concerned about? There's
0: two parts to that. And one is like how big this particular contingent of the YA world that wants to sort of police how these issues are discussed and decide what is problematic and what is not, how influential that is, which I think is that, like a lot of things on Twitter, it feels really big when you get involved in it and you get caught up in it. But as um, the Vulture article pointed out, it doesn't seem to have affected the sales or even the reviews or responses to the book that much. You know, it's doing pretty well on Amazon and it's mostly getting positive reviews and except for people who are like, it's a little too preachy about the racial tolerance thing, which is kind of weirdly ironic. And it gives you a sense of that there that when a book goes out into the world, there's a huge variety of people who are gonna read it who do not all you know obviously we don't want a every YA a fantasy series to be a white enlightenment story? But there's probably some white kids out there who are going to read this and maybe get a little enlightened from it. There is one area where um, there's some concern about like a controversy like this, and which is that it could impact library sales because some of the people caught up in this um, this sort of self appointed police squad are librarians and some of them are somewhat influential librarians and so so and library sales are important to YA the, there is a, also an issue with just sort of the general culture of YA because i do know sort of more prominent YA authors who feel that the sort of fandom is so sort of out of control and often hostile that they are afraid of it, and they're const- they will. I have gotten a few sort of whispered phone calls of like, "Don't use my name," and let me tell you what this person did or that person did. And it's I just mean, like dipping into a junior high school. To me, the most striking and
4: horrifying thing in the vulture article was that all of these publishing professionals refused to be quoted by name about it. Yeah, I mean, this is an entire industry that's about like, bringing young people into the world of reading, interpretation, judgment. I mean, that's what it should be about. And the notion that all of these agents and editors and publishers wouldn't be quoted by name about this issue and stick up for the right of a work to be judged on its merits, which sound, frankly, somewhat dubious in this case. That, to me, was the biggest sign that something is awry in YA publishing and and the policing of YA, more so than this particular instance, which sounds like maybe is a little murkier than portrayed.
0: In my experience, all publishing people do not want to be quoted by name. It's like really the most difficult thing in the world. It's a small world. They don't have much to gain from it. And often they sort of feel like if they don't talk about it, maybe it will go away. That's just my experience with, with covering book publishing. It's just, it's not just YA in that case. But also it's just like, I don't think they take these people that seriously, But I also think that they don't really see any reason why they want to get into a fuss with any of them. And there is always that library thing.
4: Just intellectual freedom and, you know, (laughs) the rest.
1: (laughs) Whether you care about or read YA or not, I think wouldn't you all agree that it's worth reading this article because it is about so much more than this book or even this fight? It's sort of about the way we fight online now and, and how disconnected that discourse can become from the original thing that it was about i mean it, we've talked about this book it seems like in much much more substance than most of the people who are laying their lives on the line to keep anybody else from ever being able to read it yeah yeah well the article is called the toxic drama of ya twitter by kat rosenfield we'll link to it on our show page so you can join the discussion at facebook.com slash culturefest. well we've done it we've reached that part of the show where we endorse for the week aisha what have you got
3: I'm going to endorse uh, a character from one of my new-ish favorite shows, um, Queen Sugar. If you're not watching Queen Sugar, you should be. It's on OWN, Oprah's network, but I don't have cable and I find it. It's easy to find. Um, and this particular character is played by Bianca Lawson and she plays Darla, Um Essentially, the show is about a a black family in Louisiana, um, three siblings who inherit their father's uh, land, farmland after he dies. And it's all about the sort of uh, issues that come along. Really great show that dives into the particulars of like what it's like to be a farmer in the modern day times, to be a black farmer in modern day times. Um, But this character, Darla, played by Bianca Lawson, is the girlfriend of Ralph Angel. Um, one of the siblings, the brother, the youngest brother. And she's gone through, over the past one and a half seasons, because it's in the middle of the second season, uh, they just had the mid-season finale, um, she's gone through a real evolution um, as a character. she, When we first met her, I think her and Ralph Angel were kind of broken up. They have a, a son together, and Ralph Angel had just gotten out of prison, and she struggled with addiction. And a lot of what this show has... Deals with is her recovery, and I don't think I've ever seen any series. At least we've seen lots of movies where characters have to recover from an addiction or are struggling with it. Um, but seeing it take place and how it emphasizes how it's always a struggle. Like there's not a day that goes by where she's not like worried about falling back. Um, you see her in some scenes and where she's in, you know, AA. Um, But there's just like little moments here and there. And there's one moment in particular that happened uh, in this season where she is really stressed out about having just lost her job uh, because she uh, left early to help the family. And she gets upset. She wants to, you know, she wants to get into drinking again. She doesn't. But she takes it out on her son, who uh, has been Playing with dolls. And this is kind of a a thing that's been happening throughout the show. And it doesn't really comment on it too much, but like she takes it out and she throws the doll away. Um, and he like it's his favorite doll and he gets really upset and she just breaks down when Ralph Angel is like, Why did you throw the doll away? And she's just like, I'm just so stressed. Um, but the moment is so like painful but touching as well because you know she she didn't do it out of because her son is playing with dolls she's doing it because of this addiction that she's struggling with but to see these moments happen just honestly just watch the show (laughs) um i don't know (laughs) i've heard that from so many people It's it's so really good it's so good and it's it's a melodrama but like it's not a soap opera if that makes sense every everything happens things happen and it doesn't dwell on them in the way that something you know more soapy um would indulge in and Bianca Lawson is just great if you if you're familiar at her with all at all um she usually as me growing up as a kid in the 90s she would usually pop up in like 90s sitcoms as like the popular girl in high school or the mean girl in high school. She was the mean girl in Save the Last Dance, that really terrible uh, 2001 movie about interracial dating uh, starring Julia Stiles. Um, And it's so great to see her sort of take a a different, like have her play a different character who's not a bitch. She's human, she's struggling, she's sweet, she's kind. uh, And yeah, I would just say that's my endorsement, Bianca Lawson and Queen Sugar and the whole, the whole show.
4: All right. I would like to endorse a flying hack. Uh, my family is currently somewhat spread out, and so I'm spending a lot of time on planes. I just returned from California, um, and I have discovered an app that is incredibly useful if you are flying. It is called Flight View. It's free, and in it you can track the status of the plane that you are are on the flight you're about to take. But it also has a little indicator where it will tell you what that flight's previous flight was. So it could say aircraft's previous flight, and then you can click on the little bar and it will tell you basically where that plane is coming from and what the status is of that flight. So that you can tell if you're Plane is delayed, why it's delayed, like has it even left the ground in the city? Like is it in the right city? Is it in progress? Like is is, is that delay going to get longer because it's still stuck at the other airport? Um, and it's just a little bit of information. There's a bunch of different apps you can use that track the status of the flight you're about to take, but this one connects the flight you're about to take with the previous flight in a way that gives you a little leg up in decision making about you know, all of the triage of airports of should you switch your flight or wait to the thing or try to get on the earlier one. It's a, it's a little little teeny hack, flight view, free app, aircraft's previous flight function.
1: So my endorsement is inspired by our conversation about Dr. Strangelove. I'm going to endorse another Stanley Kubrick movie about war, um, which is Passive Glory. I'm yeah. sure Aisha knows it, right? I, I mean, if you're glory. a movie person, you're going to say, duh, Passive Glory. That is such an obvious endorsement. But a lot of Kubrick fans may not have seen Passive Glory because well, it's, it's, it's one an it's earlier, earlier movie. Yeah, it's yeah. 1957. So it's seven years before Dr. Strangelove. And uh, and in some ways, it's a more conventional. It's not a comedy at all. It's a very serious drama about war, um, World War One. And uh, I don't want to give up, give away too much about it, but it's based in part on a true story. And Kirk Douglas is in it. He's fantastic. He plays a colonel who is charged with defending three men who are being court-martialed for essentially desertion and cowardice. But as you'll learn when you see the movie, the extenuating circumstances mean that they're essentially being set up for the higher-ups failure. Um, it's an incredible... Indictment of War it's got some of the hardest to watch scenes I've ever seen during and after this court martial and it's just not in any way your your typical war movie it's um most of it doesn't take place in the trenches or in battle at all it takes place in courtrooms and in back rooms where deals are being made and conversations are being had and it really is sort of about Um, the mechanics of hierarchy during a war and sort of how blame gets pushed down from from the top down to the the lower orders in battle. Anyway, a beautiful masterpiece, Pass of Glory from 1957. That's my endorsement from this week. All right. Well, Aisha, thank you so much for stepping in for Stephen this week. It was great to have you. Thank you. It was fun to be here. And Julia, as always, wonderful to talk to you. Thank you, Dana. And thanks for hosting. I feel so important. (laughs) So you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page, which is at slate.com slash culture fest. Or you can email us at culture fest at slate.com or drop us a note at Facebook at facebook.com slash culture fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network, and you can find an entire roster of great shows at Panoply FM. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Aisha Harris and Julia Turner, I'm Dana Stevens, and we will see you next week. Nobody moves.
0: there's blood on the floor. And I can find-